Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 22 through 37. Matthew 12, 22 through 37. Sorry, my notes were off. just want to make sure they're there. Okay, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. We have a conflict between Jesus. We're continuing the conflict between Jesus and, his, um, and the Pharisees. Not his Pharisees, but the Pharisees. There was a debate about the Sabbath, and we talked about that last week, or two weeks ago, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, before that, we talked about how even Chorazin and, and Galilee was rejecting Christ, even though he did miracles there. And then uh, Jesus healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath, so they leave to plot to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. We learned that from Matthew 12, verse 14. And then last week, we took a little break to meditate on Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and how Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as a servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. And now we come to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37, where the Pharisees and Jesus battle over what power does Jesus use to heal the sick to cause the blind to see and the mute to speak is it by the power of the devil or by some other power that's the debate here and here we talk about maybe even the famous passage on the blasphemy of the holy spirit the unpardonable sin as some call it let's think about these things together hear god's word from matthew 15 beginning in verse 22 then a demon possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him he healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven of every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers? How can you speak good things when you are evil? 
for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from the storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on that day, on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that the armor for the battle would be strong enough to um, wage war as we are in a spiritual war between good and evil, demonic forces and angelic forces, your kingdom versus the kingdom of Satan. And here we are, Lord, this morning for more battling. We know you will deliver us safely to the golden shore. And yet, Lord, we know you deliver us through times like this where we think about your word and we take time to meditate on it and prayerfully receive it and repent before you and trust in you freshly and draw near to you and get fresh direction or renewed and familiar redirection and repeated direction in our lives. So Father, we ask now that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, that we would learn Christ, that we would walk with Christ, that we would draw near to Christ, that we would find our rest in Christ even as we read about this conflict between Christ and the Pharisees. May your spirit help us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the final judgment, good trees will be acquitted and go to the new earth, and bad trees will be condemned and thrown into the lake of fire. The story of this passage here as I just prayed, this passage prepares us, it prepares you for that judgment day. If you're a good tree, new earth and eternal life. If you're a bad tree, condemnation and eternal death. The second death, as Revelation says. So what, what is, how does this story help us prepare for this judgment day? Let me recap the story that I just read for you, and then we'll, we'll think through the story together. In this story, we find that Jesus is healing people it says in verse um, 20, 22, he's healing people, he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons, and he is giving sight to the blind and speech to those who are mute. And so he does that, and he does that repeatedly. Fresh power that is displayed where people can see miracles happening right in front of their, their faces. I mean, he, people getting healed from, the sick, from being sick, that happens often. We've seen that before. Um, unexplained healings. Um, but seeing people cast out demons, we don't see that too often this day, at least in our part of the world. But something that no other person has done except Jesus in the Bible is give sight to the blind. Someone who's blind that actually begins to see again, or someone who's born blind who gets to see for the first time. Jesus is the only one who does that. And he did those things. Now, before we continue with the story about Jesus healing and doing miracles and casting out demons, you might say, okay, hold on. I'm not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking these things. I'm not a Christian. And so how can I really even trust that these things are true, that this actually happened? I mean, these sound exaggerated at best. These are like myths, tall tales, like Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill, maybe things that had a seed of truth. 
that over time, people talked about Jesus and talked about Jesus and added and added and got exaggerated. So we can't trust this really old ancient book of legends and myths. Well, if that's what you're thinking, let me just say that's a great question. That's something really good to think about because we do have some ancient books that are really old and um, that are questionable whether things really happen. So I think it's a fair question to at least begin to think about. Let me give you two quick responses. Response number one, these, these, um, these records, like the gospel according to Matthew, was written within the same generation of the people who lived it. 20 to 30 years after the events, these books were written. And so it's too short of a time for a lot of exaggeration and myths to build up. Because if you start saying he cast out demons, he healed the blind, he fed 5,000 people, and there's people who are at those events, they could easily deny it. It's too soon. You need a lot longer of a time to make up lies and myths that would actually be plausible and people would actually start to believe it or be unable to, to discredit it. So that's the first reason why I would say you should probably lean into trusting the Bible because the events are too, too early to, to the, um, the writings are too early or they're too, um, I mean the time period, I'm sorry, the time period between the writings and the events are so short that it's very plausible but that these things happen. The second thing is that the way that the, they record Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in these gospel accounts are not ways that are typical if you are trying to make up a religion of lies and myths and legends. So um, very particularly, when Jesus rose from the dead, the very first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. Were women in all four accounts. They were women who saw Jesus first. Now, if you're making up a religion in the first century in the Roman Empire and you want this thing to take off, you don't say that women saw Jesus first. Why? Because even in Roman law in that day, women were not allowed to testify in court. So if they are the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' resurrection in that first century, that wouldn't fly. Why did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say that women were the first to see Jesus? If it wasn't to trick people, why did they say that? Because it really happened. And so at least for those two reasons, if you're going to be very quick to write off the Bible, I would encourage you to think again that uh, these events, healing, casting out demons, healing the blind, giving speech to the mute, giving the deaf hearing, that these things actually plausibly happened. Okay, so let's continue on with the story. So Jesus is healing, he's casting out demons, he's healing the blind, and so the, crowd are, the crowds are so taken aback by these, these um, miraculous events that they, they think, what, what can explain this? And they do have an explanation. What's their exp explanation in verse 23? What's their explanation? Could this be the son of David? Could this, and who's, this, who's David? David is the what? Or David was the what? The king of Israel. So if this is the son of David, David was given a promise that he would have a dynasty that lasts forever and he would have a son who would rule over the kingdom of God forever. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the promised king that we're waiting for? That's a pretty tall order. That prophecy is at least a thousand years old. David was given that around a thousand B.C., and here they are, a thousand years later, thinking, is this the fulfillment of the thousand-year-old prophecy? Well, Jesus had enemies. And so when the enemies 
uh, the Pharisees who already are plotting to kill Jesus, according to Matthew in Matthew 12, 14, when they hear about this, they can't let this theory that Jesus is the Messiah take off because they're opposed to Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. And so they come up with a conspiracy theory. Maybe you've heard that concept before, a conspiracy theory. Pretty big in our day of internet and um, social media where anyone can say anything and they can make websites that look as plausible and as credible as any other website. Uh, conspiracy theories. Here's a conspiracy theory. We know how Jesus heals the blind. We know how he gives mute people speech. We know how he casts out demons. What's their answer? What's their conspiracy theory? According to verse 24. This man drives out demons only by who? Only by Beelzebul, the prince or the ruler of demons. By the ruler of the demons, that's the only way this man casts out demons. There's their theory. This man is demon-possessed. This man is demon-oppressed. This is an agent of the demons. This is an agent of the ruler of the demons, Beelzebul, the ruler of earth, the lower parts. He is an agent of Beelzebul. He's undercover for Beelzebul, is the conspiracy theory. So then Jesus gives a thorough response, and in his thorough response, he debunks their logic, um, their theory. He says this theory is illogical. It doesn't make sense that the kingdom, that Satan would fight against Satan, that a kingdom would be divided. Your, um, your, your theory is also inconsistent because you have your own uh, sons who are casting out demons. If I'm casting out demons by, by Satan, who are your sons casting out demons by? So it's inconsistent that you would accuse me of that. Thirdly, it's um, inferior. My explanation is better. I'm actually casting out these demons, not by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, I'm casting out these demons by the spirit of God because I am the king. I am the son of David. I am the one who's bringing in the kingdom. So he, he shows those things. He claims centrality. If you're not against me or if you're not for me, you're against me. If you don't gather with me, you're scattering from me. But I'm coming and there are only two teams. There are not three teams. There's only two teams. And then he calls them to make the tree good. If you're a good tree, or uh, make your tree good and bear good fruit. Or if you're going to keep on going in rebellion, make your tree bad. Just own it and be that and make your tree bad. And then he warns that there is going to be a final judgment for what you say and for what kind of tree or heart you have. And the tree and the heart are the same. Those are two different images that, that Jesus is bringing about here. So here's the issue for us today. That's the story. Here's the issue for us today who are thinking about this story here in Bellflower this morning. We will all, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, according to Jesus and according to the Bible, we will all be judged on Judgment Day. You will be judged. As I look around at your faces, I'm looking around at every single person, and every single person I'm seeing will be judged on Judgment Day. Now, your occasional guilt your guilty conscience that you might have sometimes about certain sins in your life that you're uncomfortable with, that is a faint echo of the thunderous declaration of judgment that will come on the final day. Judgment day is coming. And I pray that none of you will be damned to the lake of fire and that each of you will celebrate with God, that you'll celebrate God and celebrate God with the rest of us on the new earth to come. And so we get our main goal 
Really, there's only one command in this passage. It's in verse 33. This is the main command of the passage. Uh, look at verse 33. It's a little bit obscure. It's hidden among all the details and the um, things that jump out at you from the passage. But look at verse 33. Here's the command. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. So there's the command. Make the tree good. So here's the way I'm, I'm saying the main goal. The main goal, and it's just as simple, make your heart good. That's what Jesus is saying. Make your tree good, make your heart good. So the tree, if you read on, is the heart. And the heart is the storeroom of your life, the storage place, the treasury of your life. So make your treasury good, make your storeroom good, make your tree good. But the way I'm saying it, as far as the way I'm articulating the main goal is, make your heart good. That's what God is telling you this morning. That's what he's calling you to do this morning, is for you to make your heart good. This is not to say that you have the power to save yourself. Or that you can change your heart on your own power. Just like you can't make a tree good if it's bad. This call to make the tree good is what other passages, like in Deuteronomy 10, where it says, circumcise your hearts. You have no power to circumcise your hearts, yet you're commanded to circumcise your hearts. Change yourself. So this is a call to repent from your sin and your sinful desires and your commitment to your sins, your partial commitment to your sins that have not been fully released, and to trust in Jesus Christ. This is akin to James in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, saying, purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, draw near to God, humble yourselves before the Lord. James says, purify your heart. Now we know that only Jesus can purify our hearts in one sense, theologically. But James is saying, you purify your heart. You make the tree good. You make your heart good. You circumcise your heart. Make your tree good and its fruit will be good. Make your tree bad and its fruit will be bad. So there's the main call. Make your heart good. I'm going to give you three reasons why you need to make your heart good, and that will be the outline for our sermon. So three reasons why you need to make your heart good. Make your heart good because, number one, the Spirit reveals Jesus as King. That's verses 23 to 32. The Spirit reveals Jesus as King, verses 23 to 32. Secondly, make your heart good because your words reveal your heart. That's verses 33 through 35. Your words reveal your heart. Verses 33 through 35. And then lastly, make your heart good because you will be judged by your heart or by your words, which reveal your heart. You will be judged by your heart. So that's why you need to make your heart good. Okay, let me re recap. That's verses 36 and 37. So make your heart good because the Spirit reveals Jesus as King, because your words reveal your heart, and because you will be judged by your heart and your words that reveal your heart. Let's look at these one at a time. I confess that our first one, just even by the verse breakdown, is the longest one, okay? So don't panic after point one. Point two and point three are, are shorter than point one. Point one is the long and big and bulky one for this morning, verses 24 to 32, okay? So make your heart good. Reason number one, because God's spirit reveals Jesus as God's king. Because God's spirit reveals Jesus as God's king. And as we look at this section of verses 24 through 32, we find actually 
three reasons to trust that God's spirit has actually revealed Jesus as God's king. So one reason why uh, we know that God's spirit has revealed Jesus as God's king is because the Pharisees' conspiracy theory is debunked. Is, is debunked in, in verses 30, 24 to 29. Jesus debunks the conspiracy th theory in verses 24 to 29. I already gave you an overview of it, but let's look at it again. Verse 25 and 26. Verses 25 and 26 says, knowing their thoughts, their thoughts that he, he, their explanation is Jesus casts out demons by who? By the power of who? Beelzebul, who's also known as just later on in ruler of the demons, but later on in the passage, Jesus is going to call Beelzebul whom? Satan, right? He's going to call him Satan. So um, Jesus is casting out, that's the conspiracy theory, that Jesus is on Satan's side. So Jesus is going to debunk this first by saying that's illogical, verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? It makes no sense that I'm actually on Satan's side if I'm casting out demons who are for Satan. Just like a basketball team or a sports team cannot succeed in winning if they don't have teamwork and they're not on the same team, just like a family cannot thrive if there's a division between husband and wife, just like a, a nation can't thrive, our, our nation in the 1800s at civil war, when there's a nation in civil war amongst itself, they, if they're divided, they can't thrive as a nation. A house divided, a city divided, a nation divided, a family divided against itself cannot stand. It makes no sense that I am going against Satan by Satan's power. That's illogical. So that's the first um, response of debunking. The, the second thing here is it's inconsistent. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this is the reason, for this reason they will be your judges. Your sons are debunk your sons are casting out demons. People who are demonized, oppressed by demons, strongly influenced by demons where they've almost lost control of their own lives in very strong, in a very uh, visceral and powerful way. If your sons are casting out demons, and I'm casting out demons, and no one can deny I'm casting out demons because the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the mute are speaking. If I'm casting out demons, and that's undeniable, and your sons are claiming to cast out demons, and I'm doing it by Beelzebul, well, what about your sons? Are you saying that your sons are, are on Satan's side? That's inconsistent that you can levy that accusation towards me and not own that for your own team. Not as strong of an argument as the first one, but still powerful enough to show how foolish and stupid the accusation is against Jesus. But then Jesus also debunks it by saying that there are, their, their conspiracy theory is inferior. It doesn't explain what Jesus is doing as much as Jesus' explanation. Look at verse 28. 28 and 29. If I drive out demons, not by Beelzebul, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? So Jesus is saying, listen, it's not, the, it's not kingdom, it's not Satan's kingdom that's here. I'm doing this by the spirit of God. And if it's by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is here. And if the kingdom of God is here, what you're seeing, 
What you are witnessing right in front of you is the actual kingdom of God right in front of you. That's Jesus' explanation, and that is superior to their inferior conspiracy theory. Now, if Jesus is saying he's doing this by the Spirit of God, what is he saying? That God the Holy Spirit is empowering and enabling and leading Jesus to heal people and to drive out demons. The Holy Spirit, in his power, is overcoming the demonic powers in this man uh, to overcome not only his blindness and his muteness, but his demonic oppression, his being demonized. It's the power of the Spirit of God that's expelling the demons. And if it's the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is here, it says in verse 28. And why is the kingdom of God here? To have a kingdom, you need a king. And so why is the kingdom of God here? Because the the king is here. The son of David. Son of David, son of God. The son of David, right? The son, David the king. That's the a, that's a question that sparks this whole debate, right? Could this be the son of David? And Jesus is saying the kingdom is here because the king is here. He is the king. He is the son of David. That's what it says in Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 begins, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the long promised son, not just the promised king, but the promised son bigger than a king. In Genesis 3.15, offspring was promised to was, was promised to the woman via threat to the serpent that, one of the offspr- that an offspring from this woman would crush and strike the head of the serpent, the devil, who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 17, verse 19, an offspring is, is promised not only now to Eve, but to Abraham and Isaac, that through Isaac, the offspring will be named. So he will be a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, And then not only that, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. Which tribe is Jesus going to be from? Which tribe is the offspring going to come from? The ruler, the king? From what tribe? Judah, in Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter, which is a king's scepter, will not depart from Judah. So now it's not only the son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah. And then, guess what? There is a king from Judah. Who's the very first king from Judah in the nation of Israel? Not Saul. It's a good guess. David. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. That's right. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. But King David is from Judah. David had a sense. David read his Bible. David had a sense. Wait a minute. The scepter is coming from, there's an offspring who's coming. And he's coming from Abraham and Isaac, well, first Eve, then Abraham, then Isaac, and Judah. And now I'm the king, and I am from Judah. Saul is clearly not from Judah. He's from Benjamin. I'm from Judah. Could I be the king? Can I be the offspring that God has promised? So David is reading his Bible. He's thinking about these things. But then um, he's promised before his great fall, he's promised that actually one of his, one of his offspring will be the king that remains forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so we have this promise that David's son, David's son will, will, um, will be the king. Give me a second here as the wind is blowing my Bible. David's son will be the king. Now, Israel was thrown out of the kingdom. They're thrown out of Israel. But God promised again while they were in exile through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, that David's son, that David would come and that the king would reign 
over his kingdom. And so David is the promised son. I mean, Jesus is the promised son of David, son of Judah, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Eve. He is the king. And what is he bringing? He's bringing the kingdom. Turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Whenever we do our scripture reading, just instruction to the church family, whenever we do our scripture reading in our gathering, open your Bibles there and turn there and follow along every time we do our scripture reading. They're strategic and they're important, oftentimes tied to the sermon. Isaiah 11. Turn to Isaiah 11. Actually, before you go to Isaiah 11, turn to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. Those are our two passages at least. We might even go to Isaiah 35. Listen to this promise. This is 700 years, so 300 years after David, 700 years before Jesus. It says in Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion, the kingdom, the king dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will, how, will last how long? It will never what? It will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So the son of David will bring in the kingdom, right? And then go to Isaiah 35 and then 11. Isaiah 35 first and then Isaiah 11. Look at Isaiah 35 verse 5. Verse 4 says, here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. There's a prophecy. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For the water, for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. This is Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem crowned with unending what joy eternal happiness joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee this is the kingdom god will come blind will see deaf will hear mute will speak apparently that happened in the story demons will be cast out people will be gathered back to zion and there will be joy for ever that's the kingdom promise go to last one isaiah 11 and this is now where we're going to get to the relevancy as we even think about what we're going to hear in a second the blasphemy of the holy spirit think about the blasphemy of the holy spirit in light of these verses in isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2 and then we're going to go 5 through 10 verse 1 and 2 then a shoot will grow will um then a shoot will grow from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit okay time out Jesus is the son of who? David. This is talking about a root from who? Jesse. Who is Jesse? I thought we are talking about the son of David, not the son of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's dad. So is Jesus a son of Jesse as well? Yes. He's in the same line. Okay, so, but this is a reference to, to David, even though it's talking about Jesse here. Okay, um, a stump of Jesse from David and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now listen to this verse two, because this is the blasphemy part that's going to make it so, so relevant when we get to the blasphemy. 
Then a shoot will, uh, I'm sorry, verse 2 says, the spirit of, the, of Yahweh will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 5. Righteousness will be a belt around his waist. His hips, faithfulness, will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. A leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. Children playing with lions. Lions not eating calves. Verse 7, the cow and the bear will graze. The young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like a cattle, no longer killing other animals. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. How cool is that? Have your babies, have our church babies playing next to cobra pits. And the toddler will put his hand into a snake den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people groups. The nations, the ethnicities will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. The son of David is bringing a kingdom of perfect peace and harmony and joy forever. And so in verse 29, going back to Matthew 12, verse 29, Jesus says, that's the picture that's going on here. In verse 29, he says, how can someone plunder a strong man's house while the strong man is there? The strong man doesn't say, sure, just take my stuff. Jesus is giving advice on how to rob a man's house. Here's how you rob a man's house. You don't just go in there and ask permission. You don't just go there and hope he doesn't attack you. You bind him first. And after you bind the strong man, then you plunder his house. Then you rob him. Now, you might think of this as robbing, but who's the strong man in this analogy? Satan is. Satan is the strong man, and who's the, who's the one binding the strong man here? Jesus, right? Jesus is binding the strong man in the spirit's power, and then he's plundering his house. So in one sense, he's not teaching you how to rob someone who, he's, tell, he's actually teaching you how to rob the robber. Because Satan is the one who actually took God's image bearers under his own by deceiving them into sin and darkness forever. And so Jesus is actually coming not to rob someone of his rightful possessions, but to, to regain and retake back that which is rightfully his from the strong man who has robbed them from him in the first place. So Jesus sees himself as plundering Satan's kingdom. What is the kingdom? Is the kingdom of God? And so Jesus is saying, if I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan's kingdom, then the kingdom is here today. Is the kingdom here today? Yes or no? How many of you say the kingdom is here today on earth? Raise your hand. How many of you say the kingdom is not on earth today? A few of you? Okay. There is a sense in which the kingdom is not on earth, but yes, the kingdom is on earth today. Listen to our church confession. The kingdom of God, already present but not fully realized, is the exercise of God's blessed reign in the world. So his reign is here, in the world, toward the reversal of the curse on all creation. It is an invasive power that regenerates and renovates the lives of individuals, changing their hearts through repentance and faith, thus plundering Satan's kingdom. It establishes a new community of human life together under God, the full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. So in one sense, the consummation is not here. So in that sense, it's not here in its fullness. But is it here in part? Yes. And how do you know? Look around at this community. 
113 members of Bethany Baptist Church. This is the fruit of the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God, creating the realm of God, which is his people here on earth today in relationship with one another. So here's the kingdom today. Let's go to verse 30 now. So, so um, you should trust that God's spirit is revealing Jesus as God's king because Jesus debunks the conspiracy theory of the Pharisees. A second reason why you should trust Jesus here, this is not the major point too, but a second reason to trust that God's spirit is revealing Jesus as king is because Jesus makes him the, the dividing point of all humanity. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 says this. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters, scatters, scatters from me. You are either with Jesus or against Jesus. You either gather with Jesus or you scatter from Jesus. There is no third way. I think the gathering here, now there's, we don't know exactly what the gathering here and scattering is referring to. Some think it refers to like the sheep that, are, that scatter once the, like for example, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Maybe it's a shepherding analogy. Others take it as a harvest of gathering the harvest. I think of it, I'm not sure if this is right, so just I'm giving you other options here. I think of it more as a wartime analogy. That as the king is coming and he's invading Satan's kingdom, he is gathering people to himself. And when you're in war and battle, if your team is losing, you don't leave as a unit, you scatter. People come together to war, and then when their, team, when their, when their army is losing, they scatter. They scatter and spread out so that they, they try to survive on their own. Every man for himself, we're out of here, right? And you run and you scatter. So people are either gathering to Jesus as he's, as he's invading the kingdom of darkness, or they're scattering in continued rebellion because they don't want Jesus. To them, Jesus is still the enemy, not the savior. He's not the hero, he's the villain. And so they scatter away from Jesus. What are we saying here? That you're either for Jesus or against Jesus. And in the judgment day, you are either for Jesus or against Jesus. Jesus is polarizing. People are, are either for him or against him. You know, in our, in our culture today, we like to say, I mean, I've shared the gospel with many people, and I'm sure you have as well, with some who've said, I'm not for Jesus, but I'm also not against Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. Like, I like him for who he is. He's not my Lord, but he's your Lord, so you do you, I'll do me, and let's just not push on each other. Um, let's just not push on each other um, a view of Jesus. If, you, if you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what, this is exactly why I can't be Christian. Christians greatly overplay the differences between their faith and other faiths. Though millions of people in other religions have said they encountered God, they've had spiritual experiences, and they built marvelous civilizations and cultures, and they've had their lives and characters changed by their religion and their experience of faith, Christians insist that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that their religion is the only one that is right and true. This exclusivity is breathtaking. The arrogance of Christians to think that they have the only way. That they would press on other people their view that Jesus is the only way. He might be one of many ways, but why do you have to press on us that he's the only way? Stop pressing that on us. He's one of many ways. Well, if that's what you're thinking, that, that's, that's a pretty, I mean, that seems like a reasonable thought. But let's just think about it a little bit more. Let me give you a few things to think about here. If you say, no one should, no one should, you shouldn't press your view of Jesus on me that he's the only way. If that's your view of Jesus, what are you doing to Christians? You're pressing on them. If you say, no one 
should press their view of Jesus on others. What, what, that's a view. That's your view of Jesus. And you're saying, don't press your view of Jesus on me that he's the only way. Instead, let me press my view of Jesus on you that there is no one way. But why do you get the right to press your view and Christians don't? At best, I mean, at worst, that's hypocritical. At best, that's just unintentional. But at worst, that's hypocritical. That, that you say that you don't have the right to press your view, that is itself, that statement itself is a pressing of your view on others. In other words, being inclusive is really undercover exclusivism. When you're saying I'm inclusive, you're really undercover exclusive. That your view of inclusivism is the only one that you include. And you exclude views that are not inclusive of your view. Which is another way of saying you're exclusive as well. So to say all religions are equally valid is itself a very Western way of thinking. So who's to say that your view is right of Jesus? The point here is Jesus is claiming. You could, you could reject it, but just know you're not neutrally not doing anything. You're rejecting it. You could reject Jesus' claim. He's saying if you're not for me, if you're not with me, you are against me. If you're not gathering with me, you are scattering from me. There is no middle way. There is no middle way. So come to Jesus. That's, another, that's why I'm telling you that you need to believe that God's spirit is revealing Jesus as God's king. And the king, uh, if, it's a, if it's a kingdom issue, then you have to deal with the king. And then um, one more reason here why you should believe that God's spirit is revealing Jesus as king is because um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Verses 31 and 32. All right, I know I'm not going to answer your questions, all your questions about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here. Feel free to talk to me after. I'm even thinking about doing a video with um, maybe with John and some other brothers just talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because, um, yeah, I have a lot more thoughts than I have time to, to, to share here. But let me just give you the gist of it. Verse 31 says, look at verse 31. Jesus says, therefore, because I'm the king, therefore, because I'm the king and I'm bringing in the kingdom by the Spirit's power, therefore, I tell you, People will be forgiven of every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or against the Spirit, will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. So this blaspheming the Spirit, in verse 31, speaking against the Spirit, in verse 32, will that be forgiven, yes or no? No, speaking against Jesus, the Son, and other blasphemies against God, will that be forgiven? Can that be forgiven, yes or no? Yes, you hear it twice, 31 and 32. It says what will be forgiven, blasphemies and speaking against the Son of Man, that can be forgiven. Speaking against the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Spirit, that will never be forgiven. So what does it mean, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Or another way of saying it, to use verse 32, what is the speaking against the Holy Spirit? It's not, I'm going to contradict a lot of people if you go online to a lot of people I love. Tom Schreiner, John Piper, um, John MacArthur. I think I just looked at a bunch of other people's. Um, I'm not, I don't think what they're saying is theologically wrong. I just don't know if that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's the enduring, willful rejection of God and the gospel. I don't think that's what it is. Just a, a repeated, regular a point where you just you've hardened your heart so hard that you're rejecting the gospel. I don't think that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, because the speaking against the Spirit is an act. And what kind of act is speaking against the Holy Spirit? What kind of act is that? 
It's a speaking thing, right? It's an action of words. It's a saying of something. That's the sin here. Speaking against the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to make a big deal about words and speaking as we talk about tree and heart and storerooms, okay? So the sin here is not just a hardened heart of resisting the Holy Spirit for a long time and then you finally, he just gives you up. That's, that's biblically defensible in other places. But here it's a speaking against the Holy Spirit. Now what is this? speaking or extreme slander. Here's my definition. I'm sorry it's a little bit long. Don't worry about writing it down. I can send it to you later. Um, And then I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon, who's a lot more eloquent. So let me tell you what I think the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It is denying, as opposed to acknowledging, it's verbally denying Jesus as the Messiah, son of David, before others by speaking against the Holy Spirit, specifically calling Jesus's source of ministry demonic after receiving a clear and indisputable display of Jesus' godly identity. It's not necessarily the same thing as a sin leading to get to death in 1 John 5, 16. So it is a speaking, it's calling the Holy Spirit demonic, unclean, when the Holy Spirit shows you a clear and indisputable, undeniable picture of who Jesus is as the son of David, as the Messiah. When you see that by the Spirit's power, and then you say, whatever I just saw, That came from demons. That was Satan. When you say that, that is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. When it comes to willfully confounding the Holy Spirit with the spirit of evil, the offense is rank and heinous and most hardening to the heart. In no state of the divine economy was it ever possible to extend forgiveness to one who willfully regarded God himself as in league with the devil. This is spiritual death. Nay, rottenness and corruption and most future and the, of the most putrid corruption of the most putrid kind. It is no error but a wicked, willful blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, which dares to impute his works of grace and power to diabolical agency. He who is guilty of this outrageous crime has sinned himself into a condition in which spiritual feeling is dead and repentance has become morally impossible. I would say it's impossible, not because God can't overcome it. God can, but God decides he will not. God has already decided he will not, of his own free choice, he will never again reveal Jesus this clearly by the Spirit's power to one who has been enlightened by the Spirit and calls that the Spirit in that enlightening work demonic. So can we commit the sin today? I'm not sure we can. I'm not saying a hard no. I'm, a leaning, I'm leaning no. I'm not sure, I, I don't think we, I mean, we might be able to, so I don't want to say no. I'm leaning towards, I'm not sure that we can commit this sin, the specifically blaspheming the Holy Spirit, speaking against the Spirit this way. If we can, and we might be able to, I'm not sure we can ever label someone that they have. I don't know if I can ever point to and say, oh, that person has committed it. Now, we can commit the sin leading to death. 1 John 5, 16 and 17 talks about a sin leading to death. We can commit that sin, whatever that is. And we can harden our hearts past the point of repentance. Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 9 talk about hardening your heart and spurning the, the, the gospel and denying Christ to the point where you get hardened and you could never repent again. That can happen. And you need to be warned about that. I don't think, though, that Christians should worry about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I think you should worry about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. I think you should be concerned about that. I think you should be concerned about 1 John 5, 16 and 17. But I don't think you should primarily be concerned about 
Um, but even when, with concern, I don't think you should be worried about even these sins. You should be concerned and sobered by them, but you shouldn't worry about it. Not primarily, at least. Here's what you should do. Christians should focus on Jesus and responding to him with regular and renewed trust and repentance from sin. If they do this, they need not be fearful of this sin or the sin leading to death or the state of hardening spoken of in Hebrews 4, in Hebrews 6, 4 through 9. For those, now here's a warning to you. So if you're a professing Christian, I need you to look up here, up here for a second. If you are playing with sin and you are content with a 90% repentance and you know that you have sins in your life that you are unwilling to repent from and release to God, you are in a dangerous situation. You could very well not be a Christian and on your way to hell, hardening your heart. That could be you. If you are content with 90% repentance and you are, that is basically saying, I'm not repentant. You, are, you have not decisively cut off your sin. To decisively follow Jesus is to be committed to killing all known sin in your life without compromise. Not perfectly, but a willingness to do it. All the sin you're aware of and even praying for greater awareness of the sins you're unaware of. That is a repentant heart. God, I hate all my sin. Show me any of my sin. I want to kill it. I want to cut off my hand. I want to gouge out my eye. I want to do whatever it takes to kill the sin in my life. And Lord, I know there's sins I don't even see in my life. God, please show me those sins so that I might kill those sins as well. That is a repentant attitude. And if you are at peace with some of the sins in your life, you better be careful because you might go to hell. Hardening your heart. Living a fake Christian life. At peace with sin. Content with 90% obedience, which is disobedience. Compared, com, um, um, uh, content with 10% unrepentance, which is unrepentance. Repentance is turning from all sin to Jesus Christ as Lord. Be warned. All right, let's move on to the second and third point here. So make your heart good, number one, because the Spirit reveals Jesus as God's, as, as God's King. Secondly, make your heart good because your words reveal your heart, verses 34 and 35. Look at verse 34. Brood of vipers, how can you speak of good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. Jesus is saying, you already reject me. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit. You're evil. You can't speak good things. Evil people cannot speak good things. They are evil. Good things come from a good storeroom, a good treasury, a good storage room of your heart, of what you treasure and value. Good things come from a good heart. And evil things come from an evil storeroom, an evil treasury, an evil heart with evil values. And when I say evil, I'm not talking about just murdering and things that are more evil than you. I'm talking about Jesus not being the center and supreme king of your life. That is evil. Making Jesus second and all these other things for third. Work is third. Money is third. Whatever, family is third. But Jesus second. That is evil. That's evil. That's wicked. And so Jesus is saying here that evil things come from an evil storeroom that, min that marginalizes and minimizes Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, what is in your storeroom? 
What is in the treasure of your heart? What do you value? You fill your mind with what you value. And then your words speak what you value. Fill your mind with the word of Christ. That's my exhortation to you. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed is the one who meditates on God's word day and night. Set your mind on things above. Or uh, Romans 8, set your mind on the things of the spirit. The mind set on the flesh sets their minds on the things of the flesh. But the mind set on the spirit sets their minds on the things of the spirit. Fill your heart and your mind and your thoughts with the things of the spirit, the things of God, the things of Christ. Filling your mind with the things of God as you prayerfully meditate on them changes your heart toward God. That's how you make the tree good. Because it's God's power, his spirit and his word changing you in prayerful repentance and faith again and again and again. That's how you change your heart and make the tree good. Now what does Jesus call these enemies of his in verse uh, 34? Brood of what? Vipers. What's another word for viper? Snake. Brood of snakes. Offspring of snakes. Does that sound familiar? It's offspring of serpents. This is what Jesus, this is what, this is what God promised in this cosmic war between good and evil in Genesis 3.15. When Eve and Adam were deceived by Satan, God said to Eve, or God said to Satan in the garden, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and defeat you. You will strike his heel. So what has Satan done? Him and his offspring are at war against Christ and his offspring. And Satan has blinded us and bound us to sin. That's what he's done by our own sin. He's deceived us and bound us and blinded us. So we can make our hearts how do we make our hearts good? Do we have the power to make our hearts good? We can make our hearts good with the same power that we could do to make our blindness, uh, our eyes see, or make our muteness being able to speak, or making the dead live. Are we powerful enough to do this? Yes or no? No. Our hearts are bound, and we need a hero to save us. We need, uh, we need someone to come into the strong man's house and bind him so that we can be freed from our blindness, our muteness, our demonic oppression and deception. We need Christ to free us. All right. So the second reason why you need to make your heart good is because your words reveal your heart. And the third reason why you need to make your heart good is not only because the spirit reveals Jesus as God's king and because your, heart, your words reveal your heart, but lastly, you will be judged by your heart, by your words, which reveal your heart. You will be judged by your heart. Look at chapter 12, verse 36. 1236 says this. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. You are accountable for everything you've said. Every careless word. And, and this is important here because when Jesus said, so they say, oh, you know, let's just repeat the conspiracy theory. No big deal. Let me tweet it real fast. Let me, let me post it real, real, real quick. No big deal. It's just a conspiracy theory. You know what? I know why Jesus is doing this. Because he's being empowered by Satan. No big deal. And then Jesus says, oh, hold on. That is a big deal. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's like, no, no. I'm, I was just joking. I, I was just speaking. I, I didn't really mean it. I'm just speaking a careless word. And what does Jesus say? Guess what? You will be judged for every what? Careless word. 
You know, you know, that's what we do, right? We say something, it cuts a different way, we realize how heavy it is, and we want to back up and, and, and release responsibility. Whoa, I didn't, I didn't mean that. That was a careless word. I don't really believe that. I don't really feel that. No, no, no. You can't back up from your words. Even your careless words, your throwaway words. You're just repeating a conspiracy theory that you just heard. Oh, I just heard that, that Jesus was empowered by Beelzebub. I'm just repeating it. You're not just repeating it. You're incurring judgment on yourself for every careless word that you speak. And so Jesus closes this last verse here, verse 37. It says, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. You'll either be justified or condemned. How? By your what? By your words, because your words reveal your heart. So is Jesus saying that you're saved by your words, you're justified by works? Are we justified by works? Are we justified by words? Here it's saying by your words, you will be acquitted. Okay, let me just nuance. I think you're right to say no, but let me, be, let me, let me tighten up your theology just a little bit with a phrase like this. This is not saying that justification is on the basis of words or works. It's saying that justif justification is proved by your words on the basis of Christ alone saving you, okay? So you are justified by your words, not in the sense that you're saved by your words or works, but your words and works prove whether you really believed in Jesus and had a changed heart. Does that make sense? So James says that in James 2, 17 and 18, in the same way, if faith does not have works, it is what? Dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, can't do it, not real faith, and I will show you my faith by my works. Your words will prove whether your heart has been changed. So in one sense, you will be justified by your words. You're not saved by your words. You're saved by Christ alone, his righteousness alone, not your righteousness, but your words and your righteous actions will show whether you really believed in Jesus or not. Do you guys get, does that make sense? So this is what it says in Revelation 20, 13 to 15. The sea gave up the dead and all that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and that, that the dead that were in them, each one was judged according to their works. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you will be judged by your works and by your words. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you will be judged by God, by your words and by your works. And your works and words only prove your heart and whether you truly rested on Christ for salvation or not. The lemons on my lemon tree are not the reason why the tree is a lemon tree. They are the proof that it's a lemon tree. The fruit is not the root. The fruit on the tree is not the root of the tree. The fruit indicates what kind of tree it is. And so the fruit will be examined on judgment day to find out what kind of tree you really are. So on what basis does Christ forgive us if it's not by our words, if that's not the basis? On what basis does Christ forgive us? On what basis does Christ plunder or bind the strong man? On what basis does Christ deliver us from Satan? On the basis of the cross. Listen to Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He erased the certificate of debt. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken, away, taken it away by nailing it to the cross. God has taken away our debt by nailing it to the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's the demons, and disgraced them publicly. God triumphed over demons, over them, in Jesus. How does God triumph over, Jesus, over demons? 
through Jesus. By Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, Satan no longer has the power to hold our debt over us and bring us to hell. We can now be freed from being demonized, from being in darkness, from being blind. And we can now have freedom in Christ. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew chapter 1. And you will call him Jesus, Matthew 121, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save you from your sins. If you repent from your sins and trust in him, he came to die on the cross for your sins. He came to rise from the dead for your sins and for your righteousness and justification because only he is powerful enough to bind the strong man. If you're not a Christian, I invite you and call you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for deliverance from judgment. He will have taken your judgment if you will repent from your sins and trust in him. He will forgive you of your sins. Children, kids, don't focus on blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Some of you kids, I know as kids grow up in a Christian home, at least my kids, they'll start to wonder, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? And that's okay to ask that question. But don't worry so much about blaspheming the Holy Spirit or even am I a Christian as much as right now, trust in Jesus Christ and repent from all your sin. And do that again tomorrow. And do that again tonight. And do that again one hour from now. And keep trusting in Jesus and repenting from your sins. And you won't have to fear whether you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You won't have to fear whether you're a Christian or not. Because Christians repent from their sins and trust in Jesus. Let me apply this to the church or or Christians. Continue to trust in Jesus and confess Jesus as Lord. Let me give you, um, here's some application for the church and then I'll close. Okay, three applications for the church. Application number one for the church. We are a co-op helping each other repent freshly and trust in Jesus regularly to prepare us for the judgment day. So we have 113 members, right? In our church, is that right? 113 members? Yes, we do. Um, The 113 members is a co-op helping each other prepare for judgment day. So I have 112 people preparing me for judgment day. You know who that is? The rest of my church family. And if you're a member of this church, you have 112 members who are collectively responsible to prepare you for judgment day. Even when we're doing church discipline to one of our brothers. Why are we doing it? Because we're trying to prepare him for what? For judgment day. So we want to collectively exercise discipline and responsibility because it's not just about now. It's about judgment day. And we don't want him to be deceived now. We don't want anyone to be deceived now. We will hold each other accountable in humility and love because we are preparing each other for judgment day. We will gospelize each other and care for each other and pray for each other. Why? Because we're preparing each other for judgment day. We will gather together. We will greet one another. We will find out how we're doing spiritually. Why? Because we are preparing each other for judgment day. That's Hebrews 10, 24 to 27. Read that on your own for homework. Second application for the church. Renew your commitment and conviction to confessing Jesus as Lord. Let me give you one application and challenge. It might be good for us, I haven't done this, to memorize our church confession of faith. And let me challenge you, if you want to start with one, memorize Article 7, Jesus the Mediator. Recognize, memorize who Jesus is, the eternal Son of God, truly God and truly man, the divinely appointed mediator between God and man. He has taken up upon himself human nature yet without sin. He perfectly fulfilled the law, suffered, and died upon the cross for the salvation of sinners. He was buried, rose again, rose again on the third day, and ascended to the Father, at whose right hand he ever lives to make intercession for his people. He will return again visibly and bodily to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He is the only mediator, prophet, priest, 
and king of the church and the sovereign of the universe. He now dwells in his church as the living and ever-present Lord. That's Jesus. We confess that as a church. And lastly, last application. Who's plundering Satan's house in this passage? Jesus is. Here's my application to you. Well, first of all, is Jesus doing that today still? Is Jesus still plundering Satan's kingdom? Colossians 1.13 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In 1989, I was in the household of darkness. And, and Christ plundered and took me out of the house of darkness, Satan's house, and brought me into the kingdom of, of, uh, to his kingdom. But how is Jesus doing that today? Through you. Through Christians. So here's the third application. You plunder Satan's house. You wage war on Satan's kingdom. Acts 26, 17, Paul, or God sent Paul, he said, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's why God sends Christians. Revelation 12, 11, they, the saints, conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Who conquered the dragon? The saints conquered the dragon. Who conquers the dragon? You do. We do. Bethany Baptist Church conquers the dragon. One last verse here about plundering Satan's kingdom. Remember it says in the end that um, Jesus will crush the, ser the serpent's head. You remember that in Genesis 3.15? Listen to Romans 16.20. It says something a little bit different. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, church. That's what Paul said to the, the, to the saints in Rome, the church of Rome. The God of peace will crush Satan, not under Jesus' feet, but under your feet. Well, which is under Jesus' feet, because you are the body of Christ. So church family, plunder Satan's kingdom. Share the gospel. Love your neighbors. Eat with them. Get to know them. Call them out for sin. Call them to repentance. Tell them that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead, and that they can be forgiven and freed and saved if they will repent and trust in Jesus. Tell them! Free them, open their eyes, transfer them from the kingdom of the power of Satan to the power of Jesus Christ. So I close, make your heart good because the spirit reveals Jesus as king, because your words reveal your heart, and lastly, because you will be judged by your words and by your heart. My last closing application call is ask God's spirit to change your heart toward Jesus. That might be the main application. Ask God to change your heart, Christian or, or non-Christian, Ask God to change your heart toward Jesus. You could pray the song, the lyrics of this song. It's a chorus from the 90s or the 80s, I don't know. Change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me, this is what I pray. Change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. If you don't make your tree good, if you don't make your heart good, if God doesn't change your heart and you don't go to Christ to change your heart, you will continue in your evil, putting Jesus second or worse. You will be judged. And when you think of the judgment correctly, you'll live in fear of judgment day. But if you call out to Jesus to change you and to save you, he will change your heart. He will save you. He will empower you to plunder Satan's household and he will make you not fear judgment day, but look forward to judgment day.
Because Judgment Day for us is also Coronation Day, where we're crowned and rewarded, entering into the new earth for our reign forever in his kingdom, because he is the son of David, the king of Israel, the king of God's kingdom. Father, take these words, help people to hear and meditate on a sermon better than the one I preached. We pray that we would rest on Christ, change our hearts, make it ever true, change our hearts. May we be like you, celebrating and honoring Jesus as King and the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, friends, take the next uh, three or four minutes to share with someone around you something that God pressed on your heart and soul, a takeaway. If you're a guest here, feel no obligation to share. Just introduce